Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. In this episode 17 of season three, we bring you two outstanding talks. We started with Mr. Tom Hart, a doctor from the UK and co-founder of MyRecovery.ai. He was one of the leading telehealth companies in the UK and was uniquely positioned to discuss the opportunities of this technology in the European Union. He was followed by Dr. Dominic Ferringer, an orthopedic surgeon working in Germany and very involved with the local digital health ecosystem. I had the opportunity to moderate that discussion, so let's join our speakers on the stage at DOCSF Berlin. I'm very fortunate to uh, invite a colleague of mine, an orthopedic surgeon in England, founder of MSK.ai, a member of the Clinical Entrepreneurship Council of the NHS in England, my friend Tom Hart, who has been very successful in launching a company, and he's going to share with us the pearls of wisdom that he's gained in the hard and long uh, process of getting to where he's at today. Well, thank you for being here and thank you, Stefano, for the kind invitation. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background. That's my training, knee surgery, preferred sports surgery. I work with NHS England as a clinical entrepreneur and this is my CT scan. So for the orthopods here, you'll recognize the kidney bone. There's one orthopod in the room. This is a 13 centimeter kidney stone. So I was a day-to-day jobbing orthopedic surgeon operating, working on call, you know, 72 hour weeks in London. And I had a little bit of back pain, so put it out the back of my mind. And I had a CT scan and, and this is my kidney. So for those of you who aren't used to looking at CT scans or kidneys or kidney stones, this is a slice. And a CT scan makes you know, hard things are white, so bone is white. So you can see my spine in the middle. You've normally got two of everything in the body, normally. So you just compare left to right, and you can see there's asymmetry up there. So that stone is 17 centimeters, and my kidney is 11 centimeters. So I had six operations as a patient. So every six weeks, I went back to the hospital that I worked at and had surgery. And it made me start to think about how are we looking after our patients, or really, how was I looking after my patients? What decisions was my surgeon making about me as a patient? What data was he using? And what data was I using about my patient? So six months of sick leave is actually a really long time, especially when you sort of can't really leave the flat. So I started to think about what can we do and what research can I do and how can I start to change this? So we built some technology which became a company. That company is now called msk.ai. And we are a real-world evidence platform for orthopedic surgery. So we've been going for about four years, founded by surgeons. And we started off really just trying to understand, well, firstly, support patients undergoing their surgery. We stuck to orthopedics because the truth is it's all I really know. And we just wanted to try and help patients. Well, first of all, we wanted to help the patient, but then really understand disease progression. So what's happening to them? Who are they? Then what happened to them in the operating room? And then who do they become? So what was that outcome? 
To do that, we started off very slowly, and luckily we worked with some of the best surgeons in the country and started to learn and see what worked. And then we were very quickly forced, really, to start to move out of the UK. And actually, although I'm a British surgeon and based in London, and we are still a UK company, actually we do more work here in Germany, in Benelux, Italy, France, the US, and Australia. So that created a lot of problems, things that we hadn't really thought about. You know, how do you handle European data? How do you handle European languages? Each country is very different, yet there's still an overarching framework. So how do you support that? And we started to build a reputation, which I think is really key when you're starting out a small company, is, is really partnering with the establishment. So partnerships with people like Orthopedic Research UK was important to us, the British Orthopedic Association, and starting to work with the establishment and joint registry programs. This is how we look at the platform now. So we have a, a patient platform. So this is the app behind you. The patient can track and monitor. That can be linked to the procedure. And on the top right, you can see a very patient detailed level of data. And then on the bottom right, you can see a aggregated sort of global insight. Our first learning point, which we did by accident, is still the most important thing that we do today. Patients don't trust, from our experience, third-party software. We learned that very early on. We learned that because we couldn't afford to make animations like other companies were making these sort of patient videos. So we just filmed the surgeon on an iPhone camera and used that as our starting piece. And we found that the surgeon was where that trust relationship is with the patient. The healthcare provider and the patient is a very unique trust, especially when you're undergoing surgery. So now each app looks and feels like that surgeon's and it's customized to that surgeon because that's the relationship. So this is a colleague of ours, Professor Funk. He is a shoulder surgeon, a, a sports shoulder surgeon. So it looks and feels like his app and it's him talking to the patient and guiding his patients through their procedure. And that's what we've seen is really powerful when he's trying to drive engagement. If the patient's engaged, then you can start to learn and the patient can, you can start to collect important data points. So we started off collecting the establishment. So traditional prom data, pain, symptom surveys. And then we started to look at more unconventional data sets. What data sets could we use to really learn about disease progression, treatment, and outcomes? And that's a challenge because traditional data sets have a huge amount of traditional evidence-based medicine behind. But how can we work alongside that, augment that, and support research? So this is an example of a very simple data set showing a unique insight into a patient, something that we don't normally have in orthopedics. So 67-year-old patient, she downloads her app. She's just having knee surgery, knee replacement surgery. And we pull all the activity data about that patient for three to five years, retrospectively, with her consent, and we understand her preoperative baseline activity. We watch her for two weeks going to surgery. This is about 8 million data points. She's inputting a daily pain score, and now we're watching her post-operative recovery. Traditionally, we have no insight into this period of the recovery process. The surveys and data points that we collect don't cover this period. So we can ask ourselves now, this patient at five weeks is pretty much pain-free post-op, which is phenomenal. She's also twice as active as she has been preoperatively, which is great, but then at eight weeks, she's back down on her baseline. So, you know, why is that? Does this patient have a problem? Or subjectively, did she just want to be pain-free? And if so, that's great. To get these data points 
accepted, we need to publish and work with the best organizations and academics. So this was presented three weeks ago in Madrid at the International Hip Preservation Society. And this is looking at 80 million data points, steps, on just 70 patients undergoing hip arthroscopy. And against the literature, we're showing that these patients are at their pre-op baseline activity at six weeks. So if you want these data points to be accepted, you need to be publishing. Our key question, or, or my key question as a surgeon is, I've always wanted to know if my patient's legs are straight post-op. If they're not straight, they've got a problem. If they're not getting straight in the right time frame, we can intervene. So is my patient's leg straight? So we've used AI and computer vision technology to try and solve this problem. And now we've executed on this and we are delivering it with real patients. So the only way traditionally to measure human motion is through one of these. It's an IR infrared gate lab. This is one of our partners. It's a Vicon lab. It's probably about $100,000 worth of equipment and time consuming and old. It's the same equipment used in operating rooms. So similar cameras. People have been looking at sensors, so IMU sensors. We found that sensors are very good at knowing where they are in relationship to each other, but not very good at knowing where they are in the real world. So we got a lot of grant funding, got supported by the London Mayor's Office, and managed to build a good team around computer vision. So this is Hui, Dr. Hui Fan. His CV is slightly less intimidating than his profile picture. But he has a background in motion. So we brought him in from Silicon Valley. He'd been working for Adobe in motion capture. And we started looking at the gaming industry. What can we learn from the gaming industry? So please turn the music off, it's horrific. But this is from the gaming industry. This is open source computer vision technology, and it looks impressive, but it doesn't work for orthopedics because it's not accurate. That's not a knee, but it was trained on general purpose data sets. So someone literally saying, that's a knee, that's a hip, that's a knee, that's a hip. It's not accurate enough. It's not accurate enough for a clinical decision. So we created an algorithm, which we patented, and this algorithm looks at the anatomical landmark, so finds that anatomical landmark with a confidence interval so we can deploy it with patients. And then from that, we can calculate these points. So this is a subject. So on the left, this, this picture here, this guy is surrounded by the 100,000 pounds worth of computer, uh, cameras with the markers. It's the same frame with the markers removed, but the video in this capture is just captured from a smartphone camera. So one camera from a smartphone, no markers, and about 100,000 pounds worth of equipment using the traditional gold standard. And we don't need to be in a lab. So this is someone from our team on Hampstead Heath. If anyone's been to North London, it's a lovely heath. You can swim in the pond in all year round, just next door to this bench. See if it works, here we go. So the red around the blue line here are confidence intervals. So if anyone's a fan of sort of Brit 90s pop music, this kind of looks like it, there you go. So you can see where the algorithms got confused by another knee walking through. But if we wanted to get this technology into the clinic and help support our patients and support our surgeons, we need to publish, and we've been doing cadaveric studies. Turns out our algorithm doesn't work on cadavers if they look like that cadaver, because that cadaver doesn't really look like a human being. That cadaver's from Norfolk, and I don't know if that impacts the state of it. Anyone who's been to Norfolk, they'll probably recognize that. So we presented a study at ISTA, so the International Society for Technology and Arthroplasty, a couple of weeks back in Toronto. And we've shown that we're about 1.2 degrees variation from the gold standard 100,000 pound lab. So now we can deploy this technology 
through any camera connected to a processor. So any smartphone camera or camera in the clinic or the patient can film themselves at home or the physio can. And we can feed this data straight back to the clinic. So this is being deployed now in the UK in a number of NHS centers. So I think some of the learning points that we've got, these are our, what we look at. I think it's about not boiling the ocean. It's being about vertical specific. It's one of our biggest learning points. It's how can we really just solve that one problem and really focus down. We're augmenting and not replacing. I think we have to work and support the establishment, not fight it. So we've worked with organizations like Beyond Compliance, Post-Market Surveillance in the UK, and the National Joint Registry Program. They're striking the balance as a company like us between real-world evidence and traditional data. And I think they have to be looked at as both equally important and augmented together. We can't just go and disrupt everything, and we try not to use that word. Patient rights and sharing of data is becoming, you know, is an increasingly sort of changing world. And we see that patients are open to share their data if they know what that data is being used for and why it's being used. So if they are giving back to the to society and to help patients in the future, they're open for that. People have seen the Netflix documentaries like The Bleeding Edge. People want to ensure safety and responsible innovation. But we have a responsibility as an industry to give back the guarantees that that data will be used appropriately. I think if we're looking at the UK and European orthopedic market more specifically, I think we're seeing greater role of transparency. We have post-market surveillance registry programs, the European Medical Device Act. We're also starting to support more like ambulatory care units. So we are echoing and mirroring what people are doing in the US. That's coming more and more through. So how do we start to make surgeons more scalable, help us support more patients, safer, so in the community? And hopefully, we're moving to a place where we're looking at traditional outcome scores and data points as just one variable. I think people have become more and more open to multiple data points that we can start to look to really drive clinical decision-making and understanding and insight. So thank you very much. You know, they say that if, you, if you're doing something new in the world, keep looking because you haven't found the guy who did it before you. And you just showed me like you're a couple of years ahead of all the research I'm doing. So um, we have to share notes. It's really exciting. Yeah, well, uh, so this, uh, many of your points will come up in a bit. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a really interesting talk. Next, I have the opportunity to bring up uh, Dominic. He's also an orthopedic surgeon. He works here in Germany. He is a consultant for several startups and also a sort of a digital health driver here in, in Germany in particular, which is why we brought him here and uh, because of experience there and talk a little bit about the data issues in Europe right now. Come on uh, and join us. So, ladies and gentlemen, you must get the impression that everybody who's into orthopedics is now into digital, so orthopedics is not really agreeable, but it's actually, that's not the reasons. It's just in digital, there is more to be moved, at least from my impression. So, what I'm going to talk about here a little bit is the legal issues we have right now. It couldn't be more current than it is right now, because last week, the new digital law was passed in Germany, and I'm going to talk about the difficulties that we're facing there on all that sector. So, if you talk about this in Germany, then you sort of have the feeling that that you're being burnt while you're sort of on stage because it's such a difficult topic and you will only find enemies on that. So I'll try to make friends with you and with the topic in general. So in general, that's what most people feel like. And in the end, it's a balance always where you see medicine versus the cash flow. And in the end, it's the legal issues that change and where the impact comes from. So 
Eric Topol on his uh, Twitter account gave us a little bit about his opinion about data and healthcare. And I'm not going to make you read it all, but I'm just, uh, I've highlighted two of them. So we already have a huge major data problem, which we've had in the past for quite a while, and which is continuing in the future. And at the moment, we don't actually know where we're getting the data from and where it's being moved to, where it's hacked, stolen, or used. So that's a general problem. Data is also not for me oil, but crude oil. Why is that? I've brought a medical record of one patient to you at four different stations, and without making you read it all, you will quickly understand what the difficulties are. Data of one patient with minor flaws, may they be human or technical or just accidental, poses a huge problem and it's a difficulty to make an artificial intelligence or any machine basically merge it all. So in the end, it is the success that will depend on the data definition. So who is defining the data? And in the end, it's about refining the data. And in the end, about the interpretation. That's what's going to drive the difference, just as a general introduction to data and healthcare. There's a lot of movement. We see this happen, which I see down the road, down the road, down the road, and especially in Central Europe, not as the major problem or in the developed countries. It can be in remote areas, but it's not what we're talking about right now, not the major problem. This is where our major problem is. This is a picture, basically, as you can see it in everyday hospital life, and this is where you see, okay, this is where we really have the problems right now. At the same time, it's also the attitude of us doctors because the doctors are not always the biggest fans of data usage and of computerization of their job. Why is that? The picture on the right actually outlines it because in often in these times, the screen is between the doctor and the patient. So you end up sitting in a doctor's room, the doctor is talking to a computer and you're seeing the back of the computer. And that's not where I see digitization. I see it more as the bridge between the patient and the doctor. That's what I'm hoping for. We've conducted research, which we've published as well. We've interviewed 250 doctors. And in the end, what shows is they would use it more. They are open to healthcare IT, but at the moment, technology does not address their needs. And that's the major problem we're facing right now. That's something that I'm going to touch upon a little bit. So technology in order to be used must be simple and sexy. Everybody who's ever been in an operating theater understands that this cannot be reality because with his sterile gloves, he's using the phone. I don't think it's after the operation. A, the patient is awake and B, it would be a very unbloody operation. So certainly no orthopod in that operating theater. But in the end, this is what drives us to use technology if it's simple and sexy. So reality is when you're going to a hospital and in Germany you have a problem, what's the biggest threat that you're facing? My initial answer would have been multi-resistant bacteria, but that's only one problem that we're facing because data protection is another problem that we're facing and that in a lot of times is delaying therapy, is endangering therapy, and is making diagnosis very, very difficult. So that's a sad situation. That's something we need to overcome. Why is that? Germans love data protection. This is just a screenshot when I researched for data protection and medicine. We have 95 million results, so more than inhabitants in Germany, and at the same time, the data protection sign of Google comes up. So just as a random screenshot, I've erased the rest that is to it, but it is still a large concern. We Germans are great at developing problems before somebody has showed their solution, and that's our major problem, unfortunately. This is what reality looks like in most hospitals. I'm working in a hospital where about 5,000 people work, we have 1,200 beds, and we have 800 fax machines in daily use. 800 in this hospital. And we are what we call Excellence University. We are one of the 
best funded university hospitals in all of Germany, probably. We're in a very happy situation and we don't have Wi-Fi coverage all over the hospital yet to swap patient data through the hospital without a wire. So this is our major mode of communication. This is where you see that we have a lot of problems going on because it's legal to fax stuff through the hospital, but it's illegal to use other technical methods. At the same time, this boss of a university hospital has explained that this is, we've exaggerated it. We've overdone it. And the last line in German a doctor's newspaper is actually, I'm happy not to know anything. And actually, I don't need to know anything about my patient from tomorrow, because if I knew anything, it would only endanger the situation. So he's showing how we've overdone it. And that's where I see the major problem. This gentleman is about to change it. You've probably seen him recently with other goggles on or his regular glasses and a little bit more of a spiffy attitude because he's now Minister of Health and he's trying to push us into the right direction. I think he and his team has understood where we're going. In the last 18 months, he has passed 18 laws in the right direction. And I hope that the enforcement of all of that is going to work. And it's going to put us from place 16 in the European surveys out of 17 into a little bit more of the front row. That's at least my hope. So where do we have solutions in all of that? Where are the solutions? Most doctors feel like that. They're lost. They don't see the wood because of all the trees that are right in front of them. And it's just a lot of shades and light and you don't understand. And who is actually up to date? If I show this to doctors. So Vivi comes around and says, we're the solution to everything. We are the electronic patient record. Then TK comes. Technica Krankenkasse says, no, no, it's us that is actually the solution. Then somebody else comes around and says, we do doctor's appointments digital. It's very well and easy to do. At the same time, Yameda, who used to be the enemy of the doctor, says, no, no, we can do that. And in the end, no hospital will work without that. Not a typical medical system, but clearly illegal to swap data in the hospital. But why is it being used? Because it's there, because it's available, because it's easy. But what most doctors don't understand that it's illegal to actually swap patient data through that, but still we do it. And I'm not excluding anybody. And if you can explain to me how to run a hospital without using this, I'm happy to learn more after our talk later on. So this could be a solution. This is an article that I've published with someone who had his hand x-rayed and he has an RFID chip underneath the skin. He did that voluntarily. He's storing the data that he wants on there, but there is no system behind it. Because in Germany, once again, you will guess it, it's the data protection guys that say this is illegal. You cannot use it. At the same time, we're living in a country where it's mandatory for every pet to be chipped. So if you run over a dog on the street, you can carry the dog unconscious to a veterinary clinic and they will tell you who the owner of the dog is. If you see a, an injured child which is unconscious, you hope to find a screaming parent so you can actually find the connection in that. So that is something where I see we have a little bit of a difficulty. At the same time, it's always difficult to understand where's technology and where's the gap towards reality. Just because somebody wants something to work and it could theoretically work doesn't mean it has to work. We've always seen these types of conversations. It's basically two groups of people who do not interact. They might have a common interest, but not on the same line and they have a different understanding on how to do it. So just to show you where we are in Germany, I've brought this along and this is not a joke. This is a box that you're supposed to buy. There is no chip inside. There is no technology. You cannot charge it. You cannot discharge it. It is just a plastic box with a screw on lid. With it come a lot of forms and these forms you're supposed to fill out your medical history.
Then you stick these two stickers, and again, I'm not joking, these two stickers basically go to your door of your apartment. In case of a medical situation, you open the door to the apartment so the paramedics come in in case you lose consciousness. And then where do you put the box so the paramedics find it? What would you find in a foreign apartment at any time? Back to student days. The refrigerator. Yes. So you put this next to your cucumbers and the mustard. And this is where you store your medical data. And that's actually what they are recommending in Germany. And this is not 10 years ago, but it's actually last year. And I'm not joking. You can Google it. I put the address on there. And that's actually the status that we're talking about. So you see there is a big gap if you look from here to basically having this all in your fridge. I mean, I would rather have this than nothing. But still, we have data protection laws that are hindering us from the progress that we could make. So where's the limit of data? I'm not saying that data is the solution of everything. Just to outline that, I would like to warn you of data because that's what I do with my students when they are doing research. There is a difference between a cause and a correlation. So on the right-hand side, you see where mad cow disease broke out over the British islands. On the left side, you see how people voted in terms of Brexit. Of course, this is fake news, but it is a data correlation. I suppose it's fake news all over the place, but still somebody came up with it, and I think it's truly well invented. And that's where we see the breaches in data exchange and also in data law right now. So a lot of difficulties that we're facing right now. So what do patients really use right now? I mean, with these things, I don't see a big problem because fitness and wellness data, which pose almost 50% of the app usage right now, I don't think that there's a major threat to that if somebody knows my calorie count or my step count. But in the future, as we see this progressing, I see that there is something that we need to do about it. And I'm happy that we have the legislation that is moving the right direction. Why is that? Because in the future, we want to enable this, and this needs to go over a secure channel. If we want to communicate and do telehealth, this needs to go through a channel that is legal and that is actually safe. In the end, to make the patient and the doctor and the patient and the caregiver communicate, we need to have a safe data bridge. It needs to be enabled by all sorts of technical measures. And what we shouldn't have in the end is a question mark, but a actually what I think what we need is an exclamation mark. So we need to have a legal background that is telling us how this bridge can be built and how it can be enabled. I know it is a wish, but I think at least in Germany, we've set the ground to do so. So data is key and data will be the future of medicine and already is right now if you really look at it. So if you would like to stay in touch, join this group because that's where we're talking about it. If you come to Munich, join this group. And if you want to have a very good reason to come to Munich this fall, then join us for our conference this fall. And with that, I say thank you and I'm open for the Q&A session. Thank you very much. So Dominic, join me up here and invite any of the audience to ask any questions you have. So we had two really outstanding presentations. One about the practical aspects of deploying a technology in orthopedic uh, technology in healthcare using data science to help evaluate the course of care. We, look, we talked about the use of sensors, specifically sensors to help identify and solve a specific problem and it challenges you. The last slide was really brilliant around that. And then we switched to Dominic, who gave us a really terrific, I, I love that line, data is a crude oil. I think that's just brilliant. Sort of, it's very important for those of us who work with data, because if you work with data, you realize that not all the answers are there. It's much cruder than people think it is. We're a long way from just mining it, having all the answers. So 
Real quick, any questions from the audience? Hi, Tobias Winkler from Berlin. Thank you for the for the talk, Dominique. It was really a cool cool one. I would like to have your vision on on the next two years what ha will happen in Germany because now we have a legislative vote, a verdict more or less. Now we have to implement, which we like, but there are lots of obstacles. As you said, we still have the fax machines, we still have the slow data uh, lines, uh, we don't have Wi-Fi coverage. So how do you envision the development within the next one or two years? How will this implementation in Germany work? Well, very interesting question. Thank you. So on the on the intermediate run, so one to two years, I don't think a lot will happen in terms of real change. Of course, a couple of digital solutions will come into market. They will be reimbursed and will be used by patients. But then in the end, is it going to change our hospital data usage? Is it going to change all of this fundamentally? I don't think yet, because what we will also need on the intermediate run, and you can read that in the press every now and then, we need funding. Because basically all of the hospital data structure that we have right now is based on both software and hardware, which is by far outdated. I can speak about my hospital. We have 0.5% of the yearly budget as a IT budget. We would need to come up to date or to stay up to date about 2%. And I think to speed up and to actually catch up, we would need between 4 and 5%. So until we've solved the budget problem, not a lot will change because in the end, it's not going to work. So what is going to work is the outpatient centers, people in private practice who are open towards technology will use it more and more. And also patients will overdo it because in my everyday life, people through messages sent me their x-rays to look at and all of these things. Of course, not according and complying with German data law, but at the moment, this is basically reality is overcoming the legal situation. And I think that's something that we'll push for. And we will, to answer your question in more detail, we will run into a lot of dead end roads in the next two years. And through that, I hope that we sort of have a little bit of an attack moment, sort of where we say, okay, let's go forward in a positive sense. And just a last sentence on that. A gentleman on a panel recently said, when did the steamroller replace the horse? He said, by the time that everybody who is in a management position who grew up with a horse had left the management position. And I think that's when digitization will happen in medicine. I know it's a sad outlook, but that's how long it's going to take. So I think something you said earlier, and then I want to come to Tom to answer the same question, because the NHS has been handling a outdated digital health infrastructure, but has been successful at driving a fair amount of digital change. So we'd love to hear from you on that one. This idea that healthcare has to switch overnight is, I think, ill-founded. If any of you read uh, Clay Christensen's book about uh, Innovator's Dilemma, that book has come true almost line item by line item, chapter by chapter, as predicted. In other words, change happens at the periphery, in a clinic, in an office, and slowly takes over the, the fundamental infrastructure. So don't expect this to take one year. It may not take a generation, but it will take time, and it's going to develop sequentially. Tom, what happened with the NHS? So I'm not an expert on the NHS. I, I certainly wasn't. So what was your experience, the point <laughs> so, of um, NHS? So I will caveat that. So I do not speak for the NHS. So I have been an employee of the NHS and I've been a, a surgeon in a number of very, very busy university teaching hospitals. 
the, the NHS is very unique and has done a lot to support innovation and it has a history of supporting innovation as well. So a lot of great, you know, we invented the hip replacement. We still, we still claim that, you know, other people claim that as well, but Charnley and in Manchester, so especially in orthopedics, the NHS is, is, is moving. You know, it, it was very advanced, maybe 10, 15 years ago and that collapsed. That was the, the idea that we were going to have one electronic healthcare record system. We were going to build it straight away from scratch. Uh, that didn't go so well. It's still the largest failure in any digital project, both in the cost and time globally. However, you know, we love our fax machines. We still do. We love our pages as well. I actually quite liked my pager in the sense that if I was operating, I didn't answer it. They didn't leave a message on it. But we are moving away from that. And there's a number of companies that are doing very well in the UK, which in the NHS, which are like a WhatsApp for, for doctors. I think one of the problems that I do see is, so when it comes to data protection, the NHS has been quite forward thinking in terms of having stamp of approval or, or certain governance that you can go through and then have and show to demonstrate that you are compliant. But the challenges we see is workforce, I think a lot of the large hospitals in the UK just don't have the workforce to help evaluate new digital technologies coming through. So how do we facilitate that? It can still take you six months to go through the compliance and the digital regime at that hospital to get approved. And that's just because there isn't the expertise necessarily. You know, if, I always like to think about the financial sector. You know, when you're going to get a credit card or pay online, you can see a number of stamps which make you feel that this transaction is safe. We don't really have that. There's no stamp that some digital health company or healthcare data can just have, a number of those which say, hey, this is approved by this healthcare service. One of the pitfalls that I see which is helping us in the UK, but may be a problem, is that many hospitals will have an innovation fund or will be given a tariff or some money to spend on innovation. But sometimes these budgets can be short-lived and don't often give the innovation, the stability, financial stability in moving forward. So you may get a grant as a company from a hospital to deploy, but that money may not be guaranteed or even exist on someone's P&L in six to 12 months time. So how do we fund innovation is probably still the largest question in the NHS, I think. Where does that money come from? But we are making you know, baby steps with communication, uh, with engaging with patients. So, yeah, but it's a huge challenge. Great. Thank you, Tom. Any other questions in the audience? Always raise your hand if you have one. So, yes, thank you. Hello. Ajitish Manotra from Heroes. So, as a provider, I can say that because we have been providing or looking to provide the German market with a digital solution. So, first of all, experience from our side, and then I'll come to the question. So, when you say talk to physicians, all fine, there is a need. Patients, all fine, there is a need all good all on that end. Then you send a contract around and you stuck in the sea of the hospital to get this contract through with the different stakeholders. And the problem is that we have done our due diligence for everything from our side, but when it comes to education level of the IT in hospitals, as the legal department in hospital is really a suffering. Because the moment they see, uh, what's your cloud provider? Amazon. Oh, it's an American company, so data goes to US by default without discussing. So my question is that what are the steps being taken to educate IT as a legal department and to eliminate this fear, first of all, that digital is a friend, not an enemy. Of course, data security needs to be taken care of and needs to be checked, but there is nothing like, you know, 
at this moment, this is a big fear and they should know what to check in this contract rather than delaying it over and over again and for years for digital projects to take over. Tom, I'll let you take that. You have a data company, you're collecting data on patients. How do you handle cybersecurity? Yeah, so I mean, it's the most important thing that we do. We have to reassure our clinicians, our healthcare professionals, our partner hospitals. Now, we really connect the entire community, is what we like to think life science companies, research companies, research organizations, universities, patients, healthcare professionals. Fundamentally, everything comes down to expressed consent, and that's how we work. We also work around federated systems. So, what we do in one country stays in that country. As a company moving forward, I mean, you know, ultimately you're going to have to work with a lot of lawyers and lawyers in each country so that you can work. You know, one of the things we see is when US companies come over to Europe, they look at the European law and say, hey, GDPR, we're GDPR compliant. Let's open up all of Europe. Well, it turns out every country is pretty different. So you have to take local counsel and have local expertise. So it's expensive in that sense. But I think the most important principle is express consent. And I think if patients and healthcare professionals know why they're sharing their data, they're given the reassurances that that data will be used safely and appropriately, then I think that's the foundations of what we do. But echoing your, your challenge, I think we still see, and speaking as a clinician, I, I think a lot of hospitals do lack the expertise internally to evaluate these technologies and to understand that they are safe. In the UK, that's changing. We have a lot of training regimes. We're actually in residency programs. We are learning about these things as clinicians and certainly in the new leadership programs where if you want to go into NHS leadership, they are doing that very well. And we have NHS digital and first, but these are, these are challenges that everybody's facing. And I don't think anyone has easy solutions. So the NHS has programs designed to address that problem of digital literacy. Yeah. So that's useful. Dominic, what do you see in, from your point of view in Germany and other countries in Europe? Well, I don't see it as a major problem from my point of view. I'm not as concerned because we've all been doing what is to many people equally important as health. So we've done online banking for the last two decades without major problems, at least that not that I would know of. And I think we should see that data protection is only of interest to the healthy. Once you have a disease, once that's genotyped or once you have something, some details behind it, you will be of majorly interested basically to share the data on that disease just to find the best diagnostics, the best therapy and the best outcome. So I say is we need to drive it from internally, basically bottom up as they say, so as to ensure trust and to let our patients know that a digital solution is not an enemy, but rather our friend. And I tend to talk about digital solutions as the ideal co-pilot for the doctor. It's the smart co-pilot, or if you want to put it in that context, the smart slave of the doctor that is handling the data so the doctor can invest more time into the patient and his medical work. So we have to persuade our IT companies to allow us to, to, I mean, I see your point. I think we have that in the United States as well. They're coming. They just don't want to be the next company on the internet, on the, on the news cycle saying they lost data from 10 million patients. I do a fair amount of consulting in the United States. And what I generally see is there are some hospital systems that are open and some that are not open. And the guys that are closed, you just go to the next one. It's not worth, almost not worth trying. Yeah, then there's definitely people, there's always people at the leading edge, a smaller hospital, maybe not the most famous one, where there's somebody there who's, in, who's ready to go, who's done some work in this space, and you just got to find them. 
and then they'll be the they'll be the periphery that starts to drive the center. I think we should move on a little bit. But thank you so much, gentlemen, for your discussion, your perspective, your great talks, and we'll get on with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good job, Dominic. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. <laughs>